Good morning. All right, we are continuing our series called The Life of Paul. This is now Life of Paul Part 5, Ministry in Antioch. And we are actually still calling this man Saul at this point in his life because that's the name that he goes by. At least that's the name that the story calls him. He is, he, we're still at the part of the story where he goes by Saul, which would have been pretty much the first half of his life. So I'll be calling him that today. And as we look at Saul's life, um, I wanted to give you a little review this week for those of you who have been here so that you can remember where we've been. And for those of you that are new, this should catch you up to the point in the story that we are in. So four weeks ago, we began this series and that first sermon covered uh, 20 something years of Saul's life. We talked about the fact that he was born in Tarsus, that he was probably educated in Jerusalem, that he was trained to be a Pharisee, which is a particular kind of Jewish religious leader. And we talked about the fact that um, he was there when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was murdered for being a Christian. Like when they decided that they were going to kill this guy because of what he believed about Jesus, like they killed him and, and Saul was there and he was happy about it. He approved of the stoning of Stephen. And so that was the first sermon. And then the next sermon was over the next period in Saul's life. And I don't know if it lasted for months or weeks or a year or two, but it was the period of time in Saul's life where he was persecuting the church. He was persecuting the church in Jerusalem in particular and made things really miserable for them and got people really, really scared. And after he had persecuted as many people as he was going to persecute in Jerusalem, he decided to move on to another city called Damascus. And on the road to Damascus, as he was getting ready to persecute more Christians, um, Jesus met him on that road. He met Jesus on that road. Jesus spoke to him on his way to Damascus, and he converted. He converted from being a persecutor of Christianity to become a missionary of Christianity, like all in the course of like a weekend. And it wasn't even called Christianity yet, but, and I've told you that before throughout the series, like they didn't even call them Christians, like they didn't call it Christianity. There was this movement of people who were following Jesus, and he went from being a persecutor of that movement to be someone who would spread that movement, spread, spread the message all over. And then sermon number three happened after that. Sermon number three covered a um, three-year period of Saul's life. It was the first three years that he was a Christian. And he lived in Arabia, and he lived in Damascus, and he spent a couple of weeks with Peter, and he became friends with this guy named Barnabas, and um, he was telling people about Jesus um, effectively enough that people wanted to kill him. Just like he wanted to kill Stephen, there were people that wanted to kill him for talking about Jesus the way he did. And so um, they, they were worried about him getting murdered, and they got him on a ship and sent him off to Tarsus, his hometown. And so that's what they, so he was in Tarsus. And then last week was sermon number four. And last week covered an approximately 10 year period of time in his life that we know of as, anybody remember what it's called? Yeah, the silent years, the silent years. And we call them the silent years because we don't know exactly what happened during that period of time. But from other different Bible verses, we speculated that he probably lived in Tarsus the whole time, probably manufactured tents, taught people about Jesus, and maybe started a church. And now we get to the point where we are now in the story. And I just want you to notice, we are now about 13 years into his Christian life. And he's still called Saul. Isn't that crazy? Like that that doesn't match Sunday school when you were growing up, did it? Right? It wasn't that the belief was like he was was Saul and then he became a Christian and he got renamed Paul. But here we are in the story. And this guy's been a Christian as best as we could tell about 13 years now. He's still Saul. And we're going to look at the next section of his life where he's basically one of the pastors at a church. And he's still Saul. He's Pastor Saul in the story we're going to learn today. 
So this next time period that we're covering in this sermon, we're going to talk about the year that he spent in Antioch, okay? One year period of his time that he spent in the city of Antioch. And the text that we're going to learn is Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. I'm going to read all the way to verse 30, and I'm also going to read one verse out of chapter 13 that tells us more about Antioch. So here's our text for this morning, Acts 11, starting in verse 19. Those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen, made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the message to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, Cypriot and Cyrenian men, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Hellenists, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord." Then the report about them was heard by the church that was at Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with a firm resolve of the heart. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. That's why I say this sermon's on a one-year period of time. That's where I get the year. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch, which tells you now where the word Christian first started. Remember how this whole series I've been saying, there are these people and we know them as Christians, but that name hadn't been invented yet? It finally gets invented. This is where it happens. Okay, They were first called these, these disciples... Um, These followers of Jesus in Antioch were the first people to be called Christians. So, keep reading. Verse 27. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the time of Claudius. So each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. And then one more verse I'm going to read from chapter 13, verse 1, that tells us just a little more about Antioch and the church there. Acts 13, 1 says, In the church that was at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius the Cyrenian, Manaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So this is the account of Antioch and the time period that Saul spent there, which was about one year. And as I tell you the story, I want to go back to where the story begins. The story begins in chapter 11, verse 19. I will not read the whole thing all over again. I'm just going to read just that very first verse, just so you can remember where the story begins. It says, those who had been scattered, this is 19, verse 19 of chapter 11, those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen, made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the message to no one except Jews. So what happens here is this influential member of the Christian community, before it was even called the Christian community, Stephen, is martyred. He is killed. And that emboldens a bunch of people to persecute Christians in the town of Jerusalem. So you have all these Christians, pretty much almost all of the Christians that are in the world at this point, there are all these Jewish people in Jerusalem, and now they're being persecuted. People want to imprison them, people want to beat them, people want to kill them. I assume they killed Stephen. And so there's this persecution that starts. And so some of them ran. They said, we need to move to a different town where they're not trying to kill people like us, where they're not trying to imprison people like us. And so I think some of them ran probably to nearby towns and other people probably ran to even you know, farther away towns. But some people ran and ran and ran and ran because they did not want to be killed. They did not want to be imprisoned. They didn't want to be persecuted. And so it says they made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. 
So Phoenicia would be, well, it's a whole region, but if I had to try to pick an area, it's, it's northwest of Jerusalem. So it would be, I think, about as far away as Tallahassee is to Ocala. That's a, that's a far way to run, I think. First of all, I think Tallahassee is far away, just because, I mean, I've driven there once and it seemed like it took a long time. But this was back before there were cars. So if you're, in a, if you, if you're going as far away as Tallahassee is to Ocala in a world with no cars, that's a, that's a long way to run. That's getting really far away from where you were. Why? Well, they, because they didn't want to get hurt. They didn't want anybody attacking them because they were Christians. Then you have Antioch, which is looking on a map is even farther away. It's almost as far away from Ocala is to Atlanta. It's actually a little bit, it would be about 50 miles closer than that. So like Macon, Georgia. And so we got people running that far, no cars, and that's how far they're going to get away. And then Cyprus is an island. It's an island out in the, like 100 miles into the Mediterranean Sea. So that would be like someone run, like running away to Cuba or the Bahamas or something like that. Okay, not the same direction because it was northwest of Jerusalem. But meaning people ran and ran and ran and ran. And then after they were done running, they got on a boat and then took a boat 100 miles and then got on an island and hid on that island so that people wouldn't persecute them for believing in Jesus. And during this time, Peter's they're scattering to all these different cities, cities that are quite far away from Jerusalem. Some of them start speaking the message about Jesus. They start sharing the gospel with people. But at first, only to fellow Jews. Okay? These were Jewish people from Jerusalem scattering around to all these different cities. And at first, they started telling Jewish people about Jesus. Why did they only tell fellow Jews? Uh, it makes sense to me why they would. If you're going to this new town and, and you start to make friends perhaps with people that are like you, maybe they went to the local synagogues and started knowing people there. And so they started sharing the gospel with these people who they already had things in common with. Like we already agree on like <laughs> who God is and that there's one God and not multiple gods and that we, we already agree on the sacred scriptures. Like what do we think the writings of God are? Like it was easy to probably start talking to them. It's probably easy to start talking to a group of people that believed that there's a Messiah coming. Right? They're going, well, we believe there's a Messiah coming. And there's all these other people in these cities that are Jewish, and they believe that the Messiah is, is coming. And so I'm going to start by talking about the fact that the Messiah has come to the people who already think that that kind of thing happens, that that kind of thing will happen. So they started talking to the Jewish people first, but it didn't stay that way. According to the story, some of them began telling Gentiles about Jesus. They started sharing the gospel with people who didn't even believe in the Old Testament. They started sharing the gospel with people who didn't even think there was a Messiah coming. And they're like, I know you didn't think there was one coming, but he, he was, and he is, and he did come. He's the Savior of the world. He's the Lord that you should worship and obey. And there were Gentiles that became followers of Jesus in these cities. Okay, Antioch in particular in this passage. So this idea that Jesus would come to save not only Israel, but people from the whole world, that was still a very new idea back then. You all are like, yeah, of course, of course that's what Jesus does. But I mean, that was, a, that was a very new idea for them. And when the church in Jerusalem heard that there were Gentiles who were becoming Christians, I think they were going, what? Like, you know, this, we just didn't see this as the way it was going to be. And so they sent Barnabas to go check it out. Like, we heard Gentiles are coming to know Jesus. Well, you go check out and see what happened. And so Barnabas travels to Antioch, and sure enough, there were Gentiles who had become followers of Jesus. And so he encouraged them to keep on and to keep following Jesus. And so this is the beginning of the church in Antioch. And one thing that I want you to note in this passage, Barnabas did not start the church in Antioch. Regular Christians whose names we don't know 
started the church in Antioch. Regular Christians went around telling people about Jesus until there was like a group of people that believed in Jesus. Barnabas came to Antioch and supported and strengthened what had already begun. And at some point, as he was helping these people, he decided that he needed some help. You know, I need some help in what I'm doing here. Now, the passage says, this passage talks about who he got to go help him, but the passage doesn't say what he needed help for. So we got to speculate, but I think it's not hard to imagine why he probably needed help. First of all, he's in a huge city. He's probably out of his element. Antioch would have been, by that day and age's standards, a very large city. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Okay? It was the biggest city in that whole region. The only cities in the entire Roman Empire that were bigger than Antioch was Rome, which was way over in Italy, and Alexandria, which was way down in Egypt. So this was the biggest city around. It was the third largest in the whole empire. Culturally, I'm guessing, it probably seemed to them the way Chicago seems to us, right? Third biggest, super huge, north of here, right? That's what this was. This was north of them, huge city. And so now there he is in this large city, and he is now a leader in a large church, right? Well, how do you know it's a large church? Because two different times in here it says large numbers of people were added to the Lord. And they met as a church and they taught large numbers of people. So we've got a big church in a big city, but even more complicated than all that, it was probably the first multi-ethnic church that there had ever been. Right? This is the most culturally diverse church that had ever existed because you have these Jewish people who have led these Gentile people to the Lord, and so you have these people from different backgrounds now all together worshiping Jesus in the same church. Can you imagine the issues that that would have brought up? The first, this is the first church that we know of with Gentiles and Jewish people together worshiping Jesus as Christians. And what you would have had is you would have had people who grew up a certain way, and this is what I believe. And this is what my mama taught me. And this is what my daddy taught me. And this is what we think is right. And this is what we think is wrong. And these are the ceremonies we do. And these are the traditions that we have. And then in that same church, you got another group of people. Totally different background. This is what my mama told me. Totally opposite of what your mom said, right? This is what my dad taught me. This is the, the ceremonies that we had. This is the traditions we hold. This is what we were always taught about right and wrong. And now you have all these people with these different backgrounds all mashed together in one church worshiping Jesus. Can you picture how it would have went down? I mean, can you imagine the very first time ever that a Christian Gentile showed up at a Christian Jewish guy's house, maybe for some, you know small group or something, and he shows up with big old plate of bacon or, 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 or meat that had been offered to an idol, and the Jewish Christian's going, you know, uh, now that's, that's interesting. Did you bring that over for, for eating or for repenting? Like, I don't, I don't understand what we're doing. Why is that in my house? Right, can't you picture? That would have been like, what, what is this? What's going on here? And there would have probably have been dozens of issues like that that would have come up as all these people suddenly started worshiping Jesus together. And imagine Barnabas now. He's, he's probably considered the leader of the church or one of the main leaders of the church, which would make sense because he's been a Christian for like 10 or 15 years at this point. And most of the people that are there have all been Christians for like 10 or 15 minutes. So suddenly he's like, well, I'm in charge of this large church in a large city with all these different opinions and cultural backgrounds. This guy was probably overwhelmed with this job. So what does he do? Look at verse 25. Then he went to Tarsus 
to search for Saul. At some point, he remembered, hey, you know what? There's a guy I met, maybe about a decade ago or so. And that guy was really into Jesus. I remember like getting him in with the other Christians who didn't really believe that he was a Christian because they, you know, he was... They thought he was a spy because he was one that was actually part of this persecution stuff. He's the one that was connected to the Stephen persecution and the persecution that came after it. In fact, he's the reason why some of these people in Antioch are here. They were running from him. But he's become a Christian in the meantime, and he's really good at talking about Jesus. He loves talking about Jesus. In fact, so much so that they were trying to kill him, and he had to flee to Tarsus, and that's where I've heard he's been living for 10 years now. He's been living in Gentile territory for 10 years, telling people there about Jesus. Maybe he'll help me. And so Barnabas traveled to Tarsus, right? Because he can't send a text, you know, what are you doing, right? He had to physically like go there and find Saul and he convinced Saul to help him in Antioch. Look at verse 26. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, that's why I think it's a year, for a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. And if all we had were this one Bible verse, I think we would assume that there were basically two teachers that were there in Antioch, Saul and Barnabas, right? Start off with Barnabas, then he got Saul to help him. There are two people that are there revealing the word of God to the people. And maybe that was true at first. Maybe it was just Saul and Barnabas, but it doesn't stay that way. We know from later on in the story, not too much later on in the story, that there were five people who were revealing God's word to the people in Antioch. And so I wanted to read that verse to you as well. I'll reread it now. Acts 13, verse 1. It says, in the church that was at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, and it lists five. Barnabas, that's one. Simeon, who was called Niger, that's two. Lucius the Cyrenian, three. Manaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, four. And Saul, five. So these five people that are revealing God's word to the people and teaching the people. And I just wanted you to notice the list, because if you do a little bit of digging, you can tell that this list is perhaps a hint that the leadership in the church at Antioch was multicultural. How do we know that the leadership was multicultural? Well, let's just talk about what we know of these people. Let's start with Barnabas. Barnabas was a Jewish man, but Barnabas was most likely a Hellenistic Jewish man. As far as we can tell from Scripture, he was from Cyprus, but just before this, he had been in Jerusalem. But if he's from Cyprus, if he grew up on that island nation that I talked to you about earlier, um, or on that island that we talked about earlier, he probably was a Hellenistic Jew rather than being a Hebraic Jew. Probably spoke uh, Greek and understood Gentile customs and such, you know, those kinds of things. So we've got um, Hellenistic Jew Barnabas. We've got Saul. We know about Saul, don't we? He's in a similar situation, also Jew, Jewish, but probably also Hellenistic. He was trained in Jerusalem, so he understood that stuff. But he's from Tarsus, and in fact, he's just spent the last like 10 years or so in Gentile territory. Then we've got Manaean. Now that's interesting. Um, Manaean, as far as I know, is a Jewish name, and he's a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. That would have meant that he's probably from the Galilee area. This is someone who is a Jewish person from Israel. And um, if he's a friend with Herod the, Tet- Herod the Tetrarch, that's probably, I'm, it's, it's funny to me that he's described that way. I'm not sure why, because I don't think that would make you a hero among Christians. Okay, Herod is one of the the leaders, rulers that was there in that section of Israel, and he was not good. Herod the Tetrarch is the guy who beheaded John the Baptist. So I would think most Christians wouldn't be like, yeah, Herod's friend, you know, come sit at our table. Like, you know, but, but whatever, there he is, this guy who probably grew up in Israel, maybe was more loyal to the Roman Empire at some point in his life, but then became obviously a follower of Jesus and now a teacher or a prophet of Jesus. Then you have this other name, Lucius the Cyrenian. Who is he? Well, we don't know much about him, but at least we know his name and we know where he's from. 
He's the Cyrenian. That means he's from Cyrene. Where's Cyrene? Cyrene is a city that's on the north coast of Africa. It's, it's in what, the country that we now, like, we now call it Libya, the area that we now call Libya. On the coast of Libya, there was Cyrene. So I don't know if Lucius' family is from Cyrene or if he grew up there, but I mean, if he grew up there, we're talking about a guy who was very far from home. He's in Antioch. This is a guy from the north coast of Africa, now in Antioch. I'm guessing he grew up with very different traditions and teachings and values than the people that were surrounding him in this town. And then you have Simeon, who was called Niger. Simeon, I think, is a Hebrew name. And I'm not exactly sure. Uh, we don't know a ton about him because it we we, doesn't talk about his close friends and it doesn't talk about what city he's from. But it does give us his nickname, right? He was Simeon, who was called Niger. So that seems to be his real name. But then his nickname, the thing that people called him, was Niger. Why did they call him Niger? What does Niger mean? Anybody know? It means black or dark. So you have this guy that they called black. Why did they call him black? We don't know. But I'm guessing it's because he was black. <laughs> I'm, he's probably someone from Africa who had moved to Antioch or some other dark-skinned ethnicity, or maybe there's some other reason he was called Niger. But those were the prophets and teachers in Antioch. Those were the people revealing God's word to the people. It seems like there was probably some ethnic diversity among them, probably some skin color differences among them, but certainly some cultural diversity among them since they grew up in different places and were from different places with different backgrounds. And if that's true of the leadership of the church, considering the city that it was in, it was probably true of the congregation as well that you have this possibly ethnic diverse, almost certainly culturally diverse leadership over this church that is Jews and Gentiles, people who escaped from Jerusalem, people who'd lived there for a long time, people who'd worshipped multiple gods before they became a Christian, people who'd never heard of Jesus before, like all these people coming together. And so what did the church in Antioch do? Well, other than believing in Jesus, evangelizing the Gentiles, and being taught by their leaders, the story only includes one other action. And the other action is this, that when the church people heard that a famine was coming, and when they suspected that the famine was going to hit Judea harder than them, okay, it was going to hurt those people down in Israel in a way that's, that was more difficult than what they were going to have to go through, they decided that they were going to send them money to help them. Look at verse 29 and 30. So this is right after it's predicted there's going to be the severe famine, and somehow they must have thought the severe famine is going to affect Judea worse than us. That's what I'm assuming, because this is what the next verse is. So each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers who lived in Judea. They did this sending it to the elders, the elders in the church of Jerusalem, I assume, by means of Barnabas and Saul. So this is another thing that Saul did during that year. He was not only a leader and a teacher in the church, but he, along with Barnabas, were the people they went and visited Jerusalem at this time and gave money to those people. Hey, we were concerned of what's going to happen here. We wanted you all to have this. What a kind and generous church the church of Antioch must have been. So that's the storyline for this one-year period of Saul's life. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to end this sermon by thinking out loud a little bit of what it must have been like for them at that time. And then once we think these thoughts, I want to then 
think about what we can get out of it regarding our own Christian lives. So, imagine what it have been, must have been like for so many people of diverse religious backgrounds and teachings to suddenly be united to Jesus Christ and worshiping together. Imagine what that must have been like. Imagine Gentiles back then who became Christians but still would, for a while, probably talk the way they always had talked, right? That there would be times where I'm sure some Gentile Christian would have been in a situation where they would have been like, oh, praise be to the gods, right? And then some other Christian goes, just one God. We just have one God, remember? Oh, yeah, that's sorry. Uh, uh, thanks. That's just, that's what we always say when this happens. Yeah, but we don't say that anymore. I know, I know. We don't say that anymore. Right? Imagine Gentiles, Gentile Christians, talking with maybe some Jewish Christians. They're the church. Imagine them talking about people that they slept with other than their wives. Like people that they were currently sleeping with other than their wives. And imagine the Jewish Christian looking at them going, that's like really sinful, right? And, and they're going, it is? Like that's a, that's a big deal? Yeah, huge deal. But, but I didn't know that. Like no, no one I've ever met thinks that's a big deal. My dad didn't think it was a big deal. My grandpa didn't think that was a big deal. That's really wrong? Super wrong. Okay. Can you... I mean, I could just picture at some point, some Gentile may have said to some Jewish person, goodness, I feel like this transition to the lordship of Jesus Christ is harder for me than it is for you. You got to keep believing most of the same stuff. I had to change everything. Don't you think conversations like that happened back then? Mm-hmm. Don't you think conversations like that are still happening in the church to this day? Yes. I bet you there are several of you in this room that you grew up like Churchy McChurcherton, all right? And you had all these religious things that were instilled in you, and then one day you're an adult and you're going to church and you're hearing stuff and you're like, yeah, that's what I've always believed. You showed up one day, like after having really chosen to believe Jesus for yourself and not just because of your parents, and you show up at church and the pastor started talking about prayer. And he said, prayer is important. And you're like, of course it's important. Everyone always told me it was important. And the pastor challenged you to pray more, right? And you need to pray. And, and you heard it and you went, okay, I can pray more. I know how to pray. You didn't have to go up to the pastor afterwards and ask him how to pray. You know, I don't need to know how to tell me how to pray. Grandma taught me how to pray. I've always known how to pray. But then there's other people in the room that are going, I don't, can you sign me up for the class on prayer? Because I don't know, well, no one taught me that at all. Right? There's some of you in this room, you show up and, and church people use church words and they talk about things and they talk about how important church is and you need to have fellowship in your life, right? And you're sitting there going, yeah, I've always thought that. I know that's important. You showed up at church as an adult and they, the pastor talked about how lying and cheating and stealing are wrong and you thought, this is fantastic. I've al I already thought lying and cheating and stealing was wrong. There's a huge overlap between what I believe and what the Bible teaches. And then there are other people probably in this same room right now going, yeah, not so much overlap in my neighborhood. Not much overlap at all. It was like starting all over again. It was like learning all this stuff for the first time. It was, it feels much more difficult 
for me to obey Jesus than it is for you. I know that there are probably some of you in this room, in fact, I talked to somebody not too long ago that pretty much said this, so the church is almost sometimes a little depressing because even though you are hearing good news about a loving God who saves people eternally, and you're happy to hear that and you keep coming back, but on the same hand, it almost feels like every week I'm learning a new thing I was wrong about. Every week I show up and pastor gets up and talks about another thing that, what, that's false? That's a false thing? We grew up calling that true. The Bible says it's false? Man, another one. And then they come back the next week and come back the next week and there's a new sin. That, that's a sin? I didn't know that one was a sin. I'm still working on the last sin that I learned seven days ago that I heard was a sin. Right? Whew. I can imagine there are probably people in our culture who perhaps are like what I think some of the Gentile people of that culture must have went through, that they're thinking the transition to following Jesus and obeying him, it just feels like it's way harder for me than it is for some other people. And so with that in mind, I want to show you a brief video about a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Um, she is a Christian. She previously, she was a college professor I think it was Syracuse University, something like that. Um, she was a lesbian, and I think the rest of this story, she can just tell herself. It should make sense on its own. So if you'll play that video now, and then I'll preach a little more afterwards. When I became a Christian, I was also still very deeply rooted in the lesbian community. Um, I had just broken up with my, with my lover, but my heart was not in it at all. Um, I was uh, the, the faculty advisor to, I don't know, four or five student LGBT groups on campus. Um, like most research professors, I had lectures to give and classes to teach in queer theory. Um, and, and quite frankly, when I first became a Christian, I was terrified because I fully expected the elders of my church to be standing in the back of my 300-person uh, feminist theory class, you know, with placards like the kind I used to see at gay pride marches. Um, and I was really terrified about this. And what I was really surprised by about Christians was that they gave me the grace to work out my relationships. And they understood that I was not a blank slate and that this wasn't going to get all cleaned up in a day. My pastor and my elders, and their wives, and my friends in the church treated me like a person who was working, but, but was not going to get all cleaned up at once. And the other thing that really amazed me about, about Christians was that they were, they, were, they were almost, I don't know, they were so sensitive to the fact that I had lost something that I valued. You know, nobody said to me, well, pfft, Rosaria, that was sinful. Let's, you know, let's move on. Nobody said that at all. I mean, people knew that, that my, it was a sinful relationship, but my, my ex-lover was an image bearer of a holy God, and she did amazing things in the world. And, and, and I was really going to not only miss her, but miss the, 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 the house that we had together, miss the, our dogs and our dishes and, and the view of the lake from the window. I, I, I lost a lot. And, and I was amazed that my, my Christian friends knew that, that they, they, they grieved with me. 
I was also amazed at how kind my, my Christian, my, my new, my, these Christians were to the people I had left behind. I was amazed that they understood that they lost more even than I did because they didn't have union with Christ. They didn't have the hope of the gospel. All they had was this woman who had been a, um, an activist and a friend and a trustworthy person who became a betrayer and a danger. And they were really sensitive to what their needs were and what their problems were. And, and then finally, I was, I, was, I was really amazed at the way that Christians were not only just having me in their home because it was Sunday afternoon, but the regular way that people's homes were open and the things that people were telling me that they were, you know, strangely enough, learning from me. I was amazed that people allowed me to take my place as an image bearer of a holy God and as a newly crafted woman of God and to be a helper. I mean, they were small things and they were big things, but I was allowed to bake bread for my pastor's wife. I was, I was involved and, and embraced, and that was really powerful. But mostly what amazed me was nobody said, wow, now that you're a Christian, I hope we can just be done with all this lesbian stuff and we can just get on with the business of getting you married off and getting you all cleaned up and getting you, you know, safely packaged in a way that we can recognize. No, that was not what my church did. My church was willing to meet me, meet me right where I was at and nurture me and love me in the Lord from there. And I learned that the biggest sin in my life was unbelief, not homosexuality. I learned that Jesus, uh, that Jesus, the blood of Jesus covered the sin not only of my uh, enormous legacy of sexual uh, lust and other things, but also my tepid relationship to the Bible. And, um, and I just fell in love more and more with Jesus and with his church because of the way that Christians could stand with me and weep with me and walk with me and not think that suddenly I was going to be all cleaned up. Because you know what? They weren't all cleaned up either. Wow. Isn't it powerful to think about following Jesus through the eyes of someone who has a different backstory than you? There's another story that I heard, and I thought it was her. I thought it was Rosara Butterfield that told the story, but I can't find it. I don't know if I read it in an article or if I saw it on a video like that or read it in a book somewhere, um, but I Googled around and I couldn't find it this week, but I remember it, so I'm going to tell it. Um, maybe it's a story about a different lesbian who became a Christian, and I'm confusing the two stories. Um, I, don't, I don't know for sure, but um, I, th I think it was her, and I think the story goes like that. I'll just paraphrase it as best as I can. The woman shows up at a church, uh, like a, I don't know, Bible study or small group or something like that, and then there's a circle of chairs that the church people are sitting in, and she comes and takes her place in the circle of chairs. And she says something like this. She said, I had to break up with my girlfriend in order to follow Jesus. What did you all have to give up? And I think the, the idea was, like, I had to give up more than the rest of you, you know? And then she said something along these lines that as, as the people went around the circle and told the story of how they came to know Jesus and what's been going on in their life related to their relationship with Jesus, she started to figure out, 
Everybody had to give up something to follow Jesus. Like all, all of those Christians had to give up. That she, she realized she wasn't as unique as she thought. That most of the Christians in the room had to give up something in order to follow Jesus. And for different people, it's different things. It might be somebody that, hey, the way that I relate to money is going to be completely different now that Jesus is my Lord. And the way that my, like my hopes and dreams are all going to have to be changed because the whole purpose of my life is different now than it was before. And for other people, it might be, I have to, I've got to treat my family different than I have been. For other people, I need to relate to my children different than the way it's been. And for other people, it's I've got to talk differently than I used to talk, or I've got to think differently than I used to think. But everybody had to give up something. Everybody had to change something. And I, I wanted you all to know that, that no one is so in tune with the way of Jesus that they have to change nothing in order to follow him. Did you know that? There, there is, this is, this never happened. There's never a time that anybody follows Jesus and when they come to follow Jesus, it's like, hey, Jesus, what do you want me to, to do? And Jesus says, hey, look at you. Just keep doing what you've been doing. It's, it's crazy. We both already agree on everything. Just keep being who you are. That literally never happens to anybody. No one is so in tune with the way of Jesus that they change nothing in order to follow him. And so I was thinking about that and, and back to Antioch, thinking about these people in this church and what must have been going on in their life. And I could picture a Gentile saying to a Jew, a Gentile Christian saying to a Jewish Christian, it seems like this transition to following Jesus is harder for me than it has been for you. And I could picture the Jewish Christian saying back, oh, you're right, I get it. That does sound harder. However, I was a Jewish man growing up in Jerusalem, and life was good. And then I came to know Jesus as the Messiah, and I believe in him, and I'm glad that I believe in him, and I believe he's coming back, and he's going to restore all things, and I'm glad that I'm going to live with him forever. But when I started to belong to Jesus, my family said to me, you don't belong to us anymore. Because they thought any Jewish person that would turn their back on the, the Old Testament and believe that there's this Messiah that showed up who didn't even conquer Rome and he rose again, like that's just crazy. And they told me, stop believing that. And I said, I can't. I trust in him. And they said, then you're not one of us anymore. We are not related to you. And they kicked me out of the house. They kicked me off the family farm. They kicked me out of the family business. And if at any point I would have said, okay, okay, fine, I don't believe in Jesus, they would have taken me back. But I wouldn't, so they didn't. And I was out on my own with my wife and my three small children, and we started all over again in Jerusalem. And it was difficult. But I found some other Christians in town who had had almost the exact same story, and so we all kind of got together. And we shared our finances with each other and money, and we were getting along good for a while until the day they murdered Stephen. And then the town went nuts. And people wanted to kill us. People that used to be my friends from synagogue thought I should die. My own cousins said I ought to be imprisoned. And things got real nasty real fast. And I, in the middle of the night, we had to move. We couldn't even grab all our stuff. We just grabbed what we could in the middle of the night. And me and my family and my three small children all moved. And we ran and we ran and we ran until we got here in Antioch. And we've been living here for two years now. And so, yeah, you had to give up some things to follow Jesus. But so did I. I had to decide what's more important to me. Jesus or all my family members. And I don't regret it, but I'm just saying, you gave up stuff and I gave up stuff. They were just different things. Can't you imagine those conversations happening? 
different people with different backgrounds, all worshiping Jesus as one church. Realizing that because of their different backgrounds, Jesus would, of course, be changing them in different ways. And I think that is still happening to this day. We are a group of people. We are a church. And there are many of us in this room who are all worshiping the same Jesus. But we've all had different journeys to get to where we are now. And that's okay. As long as we are all following the same Jesus. And that brings me to the final point. Um, Their diversity still resulted in unity. All these different people all gathered together and there still was a unity among them because of Jesus. Look at verse 29. This is right after the famine is predicted. It says, So each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers who lived in Judea. These, these disciples, people of all different backgrounds, right? Or at least two different, right? You've got Gentiles and Jews all together and probably from all different cities. And they all end up in this big city, Antioch. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers. All these people came together and said, if the people in Judea are going to have a rough time, we need to send them money. Why? Why in the world would they send them their money? You've got to remember, these would have been complete strangers to most of them, living in a city they'd never even been to. Why would they give them money? You want to know why I think they gave them money? I think this word right here. They were determined to send relief to the, the brothers. That even through their cultural diversity, there was unity. That they would say, no, no, if God is their father and God is our father then there are brothers. And so even if there are differences, if I believe in Jesus and you believe in Jesus, then I got your back and you got mine. Let's pray. God, I thank you for rescuing all sorts of people. My dad moved here from Italy in the early part of last century. And there's no way our family would be in if, we had, if you had just only saved the nation of Israel. But you included me in, and you include a whole bunch of people in this room in. You're saving all kinds of people, and you've saved all kinds of people in this room. And so we just, we thank you for that. We thank you, Jesus. And so we all come together and and there are different things that have happened in our life up to this point. We see things differently sometimes and we go, really? That's how you see it? I never, never thought that. I pray that you would unify us, that we would rally around the gospel of Jesus Christ and your word and that would be the thing that unites us. And I pray that we would care for one another. And I pray that we would show grace to one another. As we go, wow, that person's in a different spot in their journey, but that's okay. They're my sister. They're my brother. And I pray you'd help us to love one another as you have loved us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.